Good morning. I'm so glad to be back with you in Midland today. Um, as Sue mentioned, I was here last June, and yes, got a new name change. Um, but I'm really glad to see old faces, new faces, all the above. And we'll start today with a reading of Psalm 40. If you'd like to follow along, it is on page 589 within um, the Bibles at the pews. Hear these words from the book that we love. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be astounded. They will put their trust in the Lord. Oh, the joy of those who trust the Lord, who have no confidence in the proud, or in those who worship idols. Oh, Lord, my God, you have done miracles for us. Your plans for us too numerous to list. If I tried to recite all your wondrous deeds, I would never come to the end of them. You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offering. Then I said, look, I have come, and this has been written about me in your scroll. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your law is written on my heart. I have told all your people about your justice. I have not been afraid to speak out about you. I have not kept this good news hidden in my heart. I have taken, I have talked about your faithfulness and saving power. I have told all in the great assembly of your unfailing love and faithfulness. Lord, don't hold back your tender mercies from me. My only hope is your unfailing love and faithfulness. For troubles surround me, too many to count. They pile up so high I cannot see my way out. They are more numerous than the hairs on my head. I have lost my courage. Please, Lord, rescue me. Come quickly and help me. Many, may those who try to destroy me be humiliated and put to shame. May those who take delight in my trouble be turned back in disgrace. Let them be horrified by their shame, for they said, Aha, we've got him now. But may all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness. May those who love your salvation shout repeatedly, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am needy and poor, but the Lord is thinking about me right now. You are my helper and my savior. Do not delay, O oh my God. This is the word of the Lord. So, as you heard from the reading, I'd like to talk about the Psalms. I can't 
for sure say this about Midland, but at other places where I've preached other psalms, I often get people come up to me afterwards and say, that was really cool. We never really hear a psalm as the main passage. Um, and they'll follow up saying that it's been used supplementary, but almost never is the main text. So I thought, why not do a psalm today? N.T. Wright actually has a lot to say about the psalms. He strongly believes that the psalms offer us so much more than other texts that can sometimes feel abstract or like a theological treatise about our faith. The psalms thread the theology and doxology of our everyday lives together because each psalm is a song for God's people to sing. They embody our faith. Just like music creates a new world for us to embrace, so the Psalms mod podge us an image of the coming kingdom and the coming kingdom present today. Every Psalm is in some way about change. We don't usually write books or movies where the entire plot is just a main character going through their days with nothing happening. No, we love these coming-of-age stories where something is happening, a person is learning how to be in the world as they are or as they might be. Take The Sound of Music, for example. I am a big musical fan. I don't know about any of you, but we start with Maria, a nun who doesn't quite fit in but desperately wants to and wants to follow God. She knows how to be in the world as a nun and has never imagined anything else. So when she's sent to be a governess to the Von Trapp family of eight, she's a little out of her league. Through the toil of a frog in her pocket and spiders in her bed, she adapts and learns how to be in that space and still be herself. She embraces her playful nature that the Abbey would not have let her have. I'll skip the spoilers, but the end, she's learned the deep hardship of the world and the joy necessary to combat such hardship. We are made for stories. We love stories about change, and why? Because some part of us longs to be more. I am not referring to the consumerist mindset that we can have everything we want, buy more, want more, have more. I mean the deep yearning to be better than ourselves than the day before, than the hour before today. Each of us, no matter our age, stature, or circumstance, has a longing for change, for the new creation we can find in God. The Psalms speak of change, but more importantly, they themselves are the agents of change. By singing, reading, and praying the Psalms, we are changed and bring God's kindness and justice further into the world, closer to the coming kingdom. Stories change us. The Bible could not have been written as a theological expose on faith filled with law and morality and unattainable to our ordinary lives. The Bible was instead written in stories. Adam and Eve, Abraham and Isaac, Samson and Delilah, Mary and Joseph, Priscilla and Achilla, Jesus. The list goes on and on. We need each other's experience to root ourselves in faith just as we need the Psalms as a whole to understand and be strengthened in our faith. 
Today we're going to zoom in on Psalm 40. Rather than try and tackle the entire book of Psalms, Psalm 40 is about praise and is actually one of those forgotten psalms. It slips by in its ordinariness and is left out of many books about psalms, as I learned while preparing for today. (laughs) Writers tend to pick the psalms with great one-liners. He is my refuge and fortress, my God, I will trust in him. Psalm 91, 2. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. Psalm 28, 7. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Psalm 2, 12. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46, 10. We all know these, right? But more than any book of the Bible, we can quote one line out of all of these psalms. But in doing so, we're missing the context. If Psalm 40 had a one-liner, it would be this. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me forever. But in context, as we read earlier, there is so much more. I think Psalm 40 is actually special. The few commentators who would write about it noted that there is a strong debate about whether it is one psalm or two. Their argument goes something like this. The first 11 verses are about praise. They follow the usual song of thanksgiving format, but the last seven verses are about lament and petition. These don't go together. They must be separate psalms. Only in the last 10 years have scholars started to refute this claim, and I'd stand with them. Just because we have praise does not mean there is no space for petition. Furthermore, Psalm 40 is so interesting because in its ordinary content, it flips the usual narrative of climbing to a place of praise from hardship, like Joseph from the pit his brothers left him in, to being Pharaoh's right-hand man, Instead, Psalm 40 starts with the praise of the people and the glory and the righteousness of God. God hears the psalmist's cry. God draws near to him from the pit. God puts a new song in his mouth, and God performs deeds that none can compare to. To the lament of petition. That his iniquities have overtaken him. His heart fails him. He cannot see and though there are those who desire his heart. Finally ending in the psalm's words, do not delay, my God. Psalm 40 bears witness to the fact that our life of faith is not always a straight trajectory from hardship to praise. Sometimes it's the opposite, and sometimes it's somewhere in between. But who really wants to hear that? Who wants to hear the story of a man who had it all, then lost it all, roll credits, lights up, end scene? We do love our Greek tragedies, but no one really wants that to happen to them. No one wants to ask the questions, what if I lost my job tomorrow? What if I got in an accident? What if I couldn't pay my bills? We love it in a play, but we don't like it in real life. So we try to make the psalm into two psalms. We ignore it in our writings, and we ignore the tension it causes within us. Yet if we push past this tension that arises, 
We see that the psalmist is trying to say, because they are not trying to tell us to abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Don't have faith, it's not worth it. The psalmist says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me this very minute. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. And what's more important is that the psalmist audience for the first few verses, the first four to be exact, is not God, but the people. It isn't until verse 5 that he starts to address God himself. Until then, he is making a public declaration of God's goodness to God's people and the righteousness of his circumstances. He says, God will hear us in the past. He took me out of a situation of death. He put me on solid ground. He changed my life and gave me a new song to sing. Do not turn to false gods, to the idols that you have made in the past in the desert or the gods of the pagan world around us. Turn to the one true God who can do more than anyone else who has proven himself and taken a man like me out of my situation. And remember, this is a public declaration song about what God has done but it's while the psalmist is in the midst of another hardship and hardship from his peers. Verse 14, let all those be put to shame and confusion who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my heart. Scholars believe that the psalmist is referring to his present community. So he's talking not just to the people of Israel and maybe he is, but also to those who are currently hurting him. He's speaking poignantly about the place that he is in. He's not chosen to lie down in his place of fear, but to stand up and praise God. During this speech, he reminds people of the wonders that God has done. Specifically in the Exodus stories that we know today about the Red Sea, the pillar by fire, the manna from heaven, and water from a dry rock. Though he cannot see God's wonders in the work that he is doing now, he knows that God can do all of that and more. There is not so much patient endurance, but expectant longing. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it like this. He calls it abrasive hope, the tension between lament and confidence. For the psalmist, this confidence is hard won. He is battling himself. We heard it. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. My heart fails me. Even though he trusts in God, he is aware that past evil acts by him may have contributed to the present crisis. God won't even take his sacrifices, which is very important because in the world of the Old Testament, the psalmist only has sacrifices to offer to God in order for God to forgive him. So what does he do if God doesn't take them? There is trepidation in his situation. The confidence the psalmist still has. From verse 2, we have already started, consciously or otherwise, to make the connection to the New Testament. He set my feet upon a rock. He requires no sacrifices for our iniquities. God is our help and our deliverer. 
we start to see Jesus in this psalm. And what's more is that the writer is thought to be a king by many scholars due to the nature of the psalm and the reference to the law. He was a king speaking to his kingdom, a victory won through the power of God. In the context of the Old Testament, the king was a channel for God. The priests proclaimed God's word and spoke what God spoke to them. But everyone's relationship with God as a nation was through the king. In a very real sense, the future as a national and political entity was found through the king. And then comes Jesus in the New Testament. Hebrews 10, 5 to 10, takes the words of Psalm 40 and reveals the gospel narrative in them. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See God, I have come to do your will in the scroll of the book as it is written of me. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are the offerings accorded to the law. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, that was a lot of words. Hebrew can get a little wordy. But what it's saying is that we are lucky. We have come to faith and come to our everyday praise and petition circumstances with the foreknowledge that Jesus Christ is already king above all, above all of our lives. That he has defeated death and sin and abolished the need for burnt offerings and sin offerings and sacrifices. Our abrasive hope is secure. We know with absolute certainty that God will win all spiritual warfare in the past and in the future and in our present moments, whether we feel like he is or not. We can be certain through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ has set us free from the pain of sin and death and brought us to the Father for a future resurrection. The Psalms change us and remind us of change. Revelations 2 speaks of the church in Ephesus saying, I know your works, your tool, and your patient endurance. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up the sake of my name that you have not grown weary. Sounds a lot like Psalm 40. But John in Revelation goes on to lay the claim against the church in Ephesus for abandoning love. They are doing the work, but they have forgotten to love. In their ordinary motions of life, they've lost their wonder. Psalm 40 teaches us how to keep from losing our love, both our love of God and our love of God's people, by proclaiming praise to God through the people. Now you might be thinking, how does praising God teach us to love God's people? And why does God need our praise in order to love him? The short answer God wants our praise for the sake of God's mission. Praise is first and foremost testimony to others about the goodness that God is doing in our lives. Praise is a cup of cold water that a person has no right to withhold from another person who's thirsty. 
this Thursday in chapel at Western Seminary. (laughs) I had the pleasure of preaching um, Psalm 40, but not exactly this. I decided let's switch it up a bit, which luckily the seminary allows us to do. So I took the psalm and took out a few words and created a Mad Libs. So everyone got a sheet of paper with three different portions of the psalm with a few things not cut out, just left blank. Everyone had space and time to write in what they might be feeling in their present moment. For example, my friend Tommy took those first few lines of, great is your goodness, God, and added in, for you have put a new song in my mouth and provided me a place to stay. Another person brought up how God had endowed leadership in his circumstances and within the specific program he's been working with. What's lovely is that everyone came away with a new sense of what God was doing within our community. It's exactly what the psalmist is trying to through just our everyday sharing about not just for ourselves, but for the other person, for the betterment of the community and the building up of our faith as a community and body of Christ. We are not massaging God's ego by praising him. This is not the scene in Monty Python where the liturgist leads as follows. Let us praise the Lord, O Lord. O Lord, oh, you are so big. Oh, you are so big indeed. So absolutely huge. So huge. Gosh, we're all really impressed down here. That's not what's happening. Praise is not meant for that. When our psalmist says, you have multiplied, O Lord, your wondrous deeds before me and your thoughts toward us, none can compare to you. He is acknowledging that he is not Lord of his own life. We are not Lord over our own lives. The good things that we have are not by our own, but always by the grace and victory of God through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are always in need of guidance, mercy, grace, and love that can only come from God. As we transition into a song of response for today's passage, I'd like to leave you with this prayer from pastor and theologian Wynne Collier. God, give us eyes to see the wideness of your world, shimmering with beauty and holiness. Stimulate our imaginations, infusing us with courage and hope. Surround us with friendship. Plant us as seeds of your resurrection. Amen.